0: Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here at the Eric Erickson show back after Thanksgiving. Oh, and the gremlins have been in the office. Apparently, you know, I was talking with a buddy of mine over the weekend and, and he was wondering, what is the name for the gremlin? That during the summer, goes into your attic and uh, screws up all of your Christmas lights so that they they were working when you put them in the attic and you get them out of the attic and they're no longer working. What is that gremlin? and And my theory is that the elf on the shelf is doing something uh, during the summer when when you're away and and the elf on the shelf is bored, he goes around and screws up all your Christmas lights and uh, apparently the elf on the shelf has been messing with our board while we've all been on vacation we're having all sorts of issues here this morning but uh, we will muddle through this morning, I'm glad to be back with you and thanks very much to all of you who uh, supported the show over the Thanksgiving uh, break you guys have been a real blessing to me, we got a ton of stuff we need to get covered with today the phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC 877 um, but I can't hear you if you call right now so maybe you should call I just thought about that. We're we're so just to give you the, the state of play of what we're dealing with this morning. This is so unprofessional of me. They always said theater of the mind. Make sure nobody knows there's flaw, but I keep it real with you guys. So You can hear me, but I can't hear you. The audio coming down the line to me is all messed up this morning. Uh, So I assume that I'm rambling here and everybody can hear me, but I can't hear anybody else. So I'm having to set my alarms to tell me when to go to commercial break because usually they they talk to me down the line. And Charlie's already texting. Nobody cares. Yes, you care. I know you care because you love me. Impeachment is not going well for the Democrats. How about that transition? We'll just get right to to it. Uh, they're, they're having to reopen the fishing expedition, and they're having to go forward uh, over Thanksgiving. All of Congress went home. You know, this is very important, and, and I don't think people pay enough um, attention to recess, Not your kids recess, not uh, not you taking a break from for the holidays, but Congress and the congressional recesses. It's actually a very important time for Congress to go home and they interact with constituents randomly. They, They encounter people in their neighborhoods. They get what people are talking about. They get what people are saying. And there's a problem for the Democrats. And that is, nobody is actually talking about impeachment anywhere they go. Here's Rick Klein from ABC News. You
1: can't fight it. I think the counter-programming is delivering what the perception is that voters want to hear from. They're not getting asked on the trail in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. They're not getting asked about impeachment. They don't want to talk about it because they don't really have much to add. It isn't an issue for them. I think, though, there's really not a good way for any of these campaigns to try to break through in this era. This is going to be the overriding story and the democratic primary is going to play out against that backdrop as matthew says if this is all done by february march we are not going to be voting in all likelihood on impeachment next november it's going to be a distant memory and they have to keep their eyes on the prize but there's no doubt this is frustrating to some of those lower tier candidates who thought this is the time where everyone is going to be dialed into the primary campaign
0: yeah and you know the problem the democrats have Seriously, I, I'm not making. I'm so excited. I get to talk about this. Everybody around here is like, uh, "What? What's your deal? What? Why?" Uh, yeah, I get to talk about Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda, my friends, is, is deeply important to the Democrats on the campaign trail. Let me explain with Mark McKinnon, who used to work for George W. Bush. Sure, I think that uh, particularly among those second tier
2: candidates, they're frustrated that so much of the attention is focused on Washington. Uh, but on the other hand, we're seeing the equation is not set in concrete. Things are changing. They're they're malleable. The, you know, the, it's it's not very often that the front runner in Iowa in September wins in January or February, and we're seeing that right now. The the uh, Elizabeth Warren is uh, that souffle is dropping. The, the Buttigieg uh, rocket's got a little fuel, and things are things are are malleable. Uh, so. We also know that in Iowa, people pay attention on the ground. They're kind of tuning out all the national noise. And we always tend to, the media that makes the mistake, as as all of us do, to sort of look at the national numbers, the national echo chamber, you know, the national notion that they're all talking about Baby Yoda. They're not talking about Baby Yoda in Des Moines, I guarantee you. They're, they're, they are looking at these candidates, looking at them carefully. And as it always does, Iowa's going to set the bar for where this election goes.
0: Well... In Iowa, they may, be, may not be talking about Baby Yoda, but everyone else is talking about Baby Yoda. And you and should be talking about Baby Yoda. What on earth are we doing? Yes, Yoda from Star Wars. There's a problem for the Democrats, and Baby Yoda is the problem. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you're a Windstream customer, you probably can't even get... Baby Yoda. Uh Baby Yoda is the surprise debut character on the new Disney Plus series The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian is a bounty hunter. If you know anything about Star Wars, the Mandalorian's uh, weapons are part of their religion. Is actually very cool. The guy's a bounty hunter. Um, the, the, the Disney Plus, the new streaming service from Disney, their debut show, they're spending $100 million on this series. Uh, it is written. It is scripted. It is produced by Jon Favreau, who did, who is happy on um, the Iron Man series. He was deeply involved in Marvel's Iron Man series, among other things. And it is, people are just buzzing about the series. My son and I have been watching it where they release an episode a week. They're not doing the Netflix dump thing. They release a new episode every Friday, literally on Fridays. Now I get off this show. At noon, and go fire up the new Mandalorian episode and watch thirty minutes of while I'm meeting before I go to the gym. Uh, it is a great show, and uh, Disney has has fired it up. They are pouring money into advertising it. They are pouring money into marketing it. Uh, they are doing all sorts of tie-ins. the The surprise character in the Mandalorian is uh, Baby Yoda. The, the plot is the Empire has fallen, the Return of the Jedi events have happened, uh, the Battle of Endor has happened, if you know your Star Wars, and uh, the Republic is in chaos, the Empire is in chaos, and there's a bounty hunter called a man, the Mandalorian. He is of, of a group of people called Mandalorians. He wears a helmet at all times. He looks like Boba Fett. And he is a bounty hunter, and he is the best in the sector, and he is sent to capture a baby Yoda uh who clearly has force powers and the Baby Yoda is going to be experimented upon and he has a conscience and having delivered Baby Yoda to the bounty people paying the bounty he then escaped with Baby Yoda and now they it's essentially a western and he's uh in hiding traveling around the universe with this baby Yoda. And the Baby Yoda's gotten lots of buzz. People really love the look of the baby Yoda. And here's the problem for the Democrats and why I get to spend the morning starting my show talking about Baby Yoda. More people are talking about Baby Yoda over Thanksgiving than they are any of the Democratic presidential candidates and more than impeachment. It is really hard for the Democrats to get any sort of traction on impeachment when everybody cares about Baby Yoda and nobody cares about Uh, impeachment it's in fact, the Democrats are going to have to open up a fishing expedition on Rudy Giuliani and the president. There's going to be more hearings this week. The intelligence committee is going to have more hearings. The judiciary committee is going to have more hearings, but they're battling baby Yoda. Uh, Axios, which is a new online news site in Washington, DC had a story over the weekend that, uh, more people are buzzing about baby Yoda than any of the Democrats. In fact, all the Democrats combined are not getting the same level of buzz as Baby Yoda, and impeachment isn't getting the same level of buzz as the Democrats combined. Uh, you've had a number of Democrats drop out of the race. We'll get to them here and, and the Kelly Lawler situation is, situation here in a little bit, but uh, this is a problem for the Democrats. you got a new streaming service from Disney that not everybody has, and that's part of the key here is that Disney, we don't know their full signup numbers, but they signed up 10 million people the first day, which is quite a lot of people. compared. Netflix has never signed up 10 million people in an entire quarter. Disney signed up 10 million people in the first day, but how many of them are watching The Mandalorian? We have no idea. But if internet buzz is anything, and you know, this is part of the process. Let, let me go off on a tangent here for a minute. One of the problems Netflix has with Netflix's streaming service is that uh, Netflix tries to generate a bunch of buzz for its shows, but it doesn't last long. Uh, how many people are talking about The Crown? The Crown has dropped, season three of The Crown. My wife and I watched The Crown. It's a good show, but how many people are paying attention to it? How many people are buzzing about it? When Stranger Things dropped over the summer, uh, a lot of people were buzzing about it for a few days, but part of Netflix's problem is it drops everyone. one. Um, it, it drops every episode on the same day, and so you can't watch together. You watch at your own pace. And so you can't really talk about the show because I may be on, on episode three of the newest stranger things, but you may have finished the entire series and I don't want your spoilers. You don't want to spoil it for me. So we can't talk about it with the Mandalorian. Every episode is dropping on Friday. So you have the weekend to talk about it. So on Monday you get to the office and people like, Hey, did you see that scene in the Mandalorian where all the Mandalorians are, are, are piling on the other bounty hunters and killing them? And everyone has a shared experience because you're all watching it together. I can assure you that you can watch a Mandalorian episode over the weekend and get to your office on Monday and no one's screaming, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, because you haven't seen it. Everybody's watching it together because it's only one episode a week. You're making time for it. In fact, there's a lot of data that's come out since Disney plus started dropping the Mandalorian that people are tuning out some of the regular terrestrial television shows and they're going into Disney plus on Friday or over the weekend, giving up shows or activities they would otherwise do. And they're watching this now. Now, how do the Democrats in this day and age deal with impeachment? One of the most interesting aspects of all of this is that candidates for office have had to come to terms with the streaming age. And what I mean by that is that if you're watching The Mandalorian on Disney+, you know what you're not seeing? Advertisements. So how can a candidate connect to you if you're not watching cable TV or listening to the radio? Uh, but they can put ads on radio, they can put ads on TV, but they can't put an ad on Disney+. Plus. So they're having to come at you on on Google and Facebook and the like, and maybe you'll see them there. But if you're not there, if you're in front of your TV, but you're not watching ads, how do they connect? How do they get their message out? Increasingly, they're having to go to door-to-door. Well, they can't go door-to-door with impeachment. They can't do that. They've got to come up with a way to connect to you in a way uh, that... A, Somehow or another, you're able to relate, and they typically do that on TV. Well, they can't. Now, here, here's this Kindelanian talking about the fishing expedition. They're going to have to expand this because they got to capture people's attention. And thus far, Ukraine has fallen flat.
3: It's increasingly clear that the office that Rudy Giuliani used to run in New York, the, the Southern District prosecutors, are now investigating him and his business dealings, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere. Subpoenas are flying. Crimes like money laundering and uh, foreign lobbying uh, are being examined. And um, this could be a bigger deal in some ways than Ukraine because Rudy Giuliani is a Fox News hero. He's a famous guy. Everyone in the country associates him closely with President Trump. And if he is exposed as having done things wrong related to Ukraine or other things that sort of blow back on President Trump, that could really pose a political problem in a way that Ukraine hasn't. Because going back to what Susan said, you know, it hasn't moved the needle in part because um, while we can call it bribery and extortion, um, the American public doesn't seem convinced of that. The Justice Department wasn't either; they took a pass on investigating this. So it's sort of the Democrats trying to convince the country that Donald Trump committed bribery, and half the country believes them, and half don't.
0: Exactly, uh, Susan Ferricchio on looks like Face the Nation this weekend, uh, talking about the same thing. in The
1: polling. And Susan, do you do you get any sense that the Democrats think they made a mistake? in following through with this? No, I don't think they think they made a mistake, but I think they are concerned that here they are in this process. Uh, we're, we're heading into December now. The polls are stagnant. They are worried that they're stuck on something that could hurt them politically. So as Rick was saying, let's move on quickly, put this in the rearview mirror. That's the idea that I'm hearing from Democrats in the hallways of Congress that we were hoping the polls would move a little bit. Nothing's really happened. What's going to happen next? Are they going to take up articles of impeachment? If they do so, they're going to send them to the Senate, where they're where he's certain to face a dismissal. It's not going to go anywhere.
0: So I I, I hit the button on the way into commercial with Susan Friccio, but you got the point there. It was it was a perfectly succinct point on impeachment and the the problem the Democrats have is uh, the gig is up if this goes to the Senate. Uh, they're they're not going to get an impeachment. In fact, one of the concerns is they're losing people like Mitt Romney, who they thought they had. That's right. Mitt Romney is is not going to side with the Democrats on impeachment right now. The way things go, Chris Saliza on CNN has his own theories about what the polling is showing for impeachment. Yeah, and
1: I'd say, Jim, that Democrats, if you asked them last Friday, did did those hearings go how you wanted them to, they would say, not in our wildest dreams, did we think Gordon Sondland, for example, would say, yes, there was a quid pro quo, that those hearings went Mm better than they could have imagined um so i would say democrats would have been much happier if those numbers had moved up five or ten points but i would also caution that we people like you and i are paid to follow this stuff extremely closely the average person is gearing up for thanksgiving uh... looking ahead to christmas uh... and so i think there's an element to which we have to take a big Cleansing breath, and think to yourself, it's possible that this will take a little bit longer to seep into the body politic, the average voter, and then let's give it two, three, four weeks and see where we're at.
0: Yeah, except that's not panning out so far. Now, Saliza is is the, uh, I mean, he is known for conventional wisdom. Uh, If Saliza says it, uh, the odds are it's conventional wisdom that's wrong, Uh, and he is now... Uh, They're suggesting, let's let this marinate for four weeks and see where it goes. The problem is that people can't remember it. And those who do remember it, they're already split. People's minds aren't changing. That's just the fundamental reality of impeachment right now. The Democrats are beginning to recognize that. And the president is upping his game. So they're they're moving this to the House Judiciary Committee. And the House Judiciary Committee is going to have its own hearings. The president and his team are saying they're not going to participate. Uh, The issue is whether or not they can come up with articles of impeachment. The House Judiciary Committee is the committee that drafts articles of impeachment. And in the run-up to that, uh, they're talking to... Um, oh, what's his name? The former Clinton advisor, uh, Mark Penn. Mark Penn is a pollster. Mark Penn advised Hillary Clinton, and Mark Penn is suggesting that this should be dealt with at the ballot box. He's a Democrat who's come forward and said, this is an issue that needs to be dealt with at the ballot box. Uh, Let the voters decide it. It's already too divisive. Joe Lockhart, Bill Clinton's former press secretary, was on uh, CNN over the weekend talking about this story that Mark Penn is now advising uh, Donald Trump. Think about the dynamics here real quick. One of Hillary Clinton's top advisors, one of Bill Clinton's top advisors, is advising Donald Trump on impeachment i th- I'm
3: not completely surprised um, uh, about there being no real movement because remember there was a big move between late spring till uh, the uh, ukraine story happened this is a This is an unusual case where the confession came first the transcript, but the president admitting he did it and then P- they, we just built blocks of evidence to prove that yes, he did it, even though he'd confessed. So uh, I don't expect on uh, Mark Penn a- as a partisan Democrat. I'm glad he's advising the president. He's a very divisive guy, not well liked among his peers, uh, and he will cre- he will inject chaos into the process. <laughs>
0: He'll eject chaos. Wait a second. Uh, So this is Joe Lockhart saying Mark Penn is a divisive figure who's not well liked among his peers. And yet this is a guy who the Clintons trusted. Now, you could look at this and say, well, you know, she lost the presidency to Donald Trump uh, being advised by someone like Mark Penn. But if you inject more chaos into the process, you're probably going to have a harder time getting consensus, are you not? I mean, one of the big issues here for the Democrats is that they've said all along they wanted bipartisanship in the impeachment process. Here's Perry Bacon talking uh, with Martha Raddatz over the weekend.
3: Oh, it matters, absolutely, because the Democrats walked started earlier in the year saying impeachment should be bipartisan. We want to be bipartisan because it'll help move the public. And now what you've seen so far is about 49% of people support impeachment removal. About 44% of people oppose it. And that's basically what was the numbers very similar to the numbers when we started this whole process. So basically we had three weeks of testimony we all described as gripping and interesting and damaging to the president that essentially changed no one's mind on this whole process in fact, 49 44 is fairly close to who voted for hillary and who voted for trump suggesting that i just think the republican party is not going to move either the elites or the voters away from president trump no matter what the evidence is so in some way we're sort of having a process that isn't going to change anybody's mind is my impression
0: Yeah, we're probably not. Consider the Associated Press story over the weekend that that had lots of Democrats in Washington, D.C. buzzing. Uh, Let me pull up the tweet from the Associated Press. Uh, This is the actual tweet. Sent out by the Associated Press on November 30th. Right now, Republicans are wielding impeachment mostly as an offensive weapon and Democrats are generally playing defense or changing the subject as 2020 congressional races rev up. It's unclear how potent the issue will be on Election Day unclear how potent the issue will be on election day that suggests the Democrats are already factoring into this that impeachment is not going to matter come November of 2020 here's the Associated Press noting that it's the Republicans on offense on on impeachment it's the Democrats on defense Democrats over the Thanksgiving break were hiding from the press uh, trying to avoid getting asked by local members of the press and local communities how they stood on impeachment and the reason is quite straightforward and quite simple this isn't playing well in swing districts swing district voters they want their own opportunity to vote on this issue in november now we got to switch some gears here when we come back you are listening to eric erickson on the eric erickson show across the state of georgia Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877 Well, there was a terror attack in London over Thanksgiving and also in, in uh, the Netherlands at The Hague. Uh, knife-wielding bandits. Um, it, the guy in London turned out to be a terrorist who had been locked up. Uh, And left in prison, uh, detained uh, without the ability of release, even though his sentence had expired. And this plays into a larger political context in Britain that so much of the American media is ignoring, but it would be useful for you to understand the context here. Great Britain is uh, trying to leave the European Union they're calling it brexit uh, majority of the people in in the UK voted to leave it's been very contentious as to how to actually leave a number of uh, British elite are opposed to it and have done everything possible to prevent it from happening uh, believing that the the voters are too stupid to decide for themselves what they want for their destiny uh, a lot of younger people are so tied into being European and not just uh, member not just British citizens that They, too, don't want to leave. There have been a series of of efforts to undermine it. Parliament is now in an election process. Uh, Boris Johnson, the Tory conservative prime minister, up for election. He's trying to get a majority poll show. He's probably going to get enough of a majority uh, that he can uh, get Brexit taken care of and leave the EU. And this plays into it. And the reason it plays into it is because the European Union Supreme Court uh, ordered that uh, people could not be detained indefinitely beyond their prison sentences, including terrorists. So the the murderer, the the terrorist who murdered the people. By the way, he had a fake suicide vest on. It appears uh, he wanted to be killed. The the murderer terrorist was let out of prison because he was being held by British authorities beyond his sentencing. They had nowhere to send him, no nowhere for him to go. They knew he was a threat to British citizens. So they left him in jail. And he was one of the people who was able to get out of prison because of this European Union order. So this plays into the election. But now here's one of the other things. So he was he was stopped with a guy with a fire extinguisher and a guy with a narwhal tusk. That's right. And no guns in the EU. So the, the terrorist had knives and was stabbing people. Two people killed, uh, many more injured. And he was uh, detained by someone with a whale tusk, a narwhal tusk and a fire extinguisher until police got there. Police had guns, and they shot him. Turns out that one of the people being heralded as a hero, are you ready for this, is a murderer. Yep, one of the people who stopped the terrorist from killing more people is himself a murderer. He stabbed to death a disabled woman in, um, out in the, uh, she was taking a walk in the forest or, or being wheeled through the forests, uh, Amanda champion. She was a disabled 21 year old woman. She was killed by James Ford in 2003. Ford ran into Amanda in the woods in Kent, uh, outside of London and proceeded to strangle her and slit her throat. Her body was discovered three weeks later, badly decomposed. He was discovered as the prime suspect after he made several calls to a charity, confessing the crime and threatening to kill himself. Ford is now 42. He was sentenced to life imprisonment for the crime in 2004, with a judge recommending he serve a minimum of 15 years in prison. He was freed on prison day release. When he witnessed Usman Khan violently attack pedestrians on the London Bridge with a knife, Ford, several other people intervened in the attack to subdue Khan until police arrived and gunned Khan down. At the time of his arrest, police described Ford's actions as a motiveless crime and a senseless crime. Described him personally as a very dangerous man. Khan, of course, was also out of prison, serving only six years of a two-decade sentence after being convicted of terror-related charges in 2012. He and Ford attended the same prison-sponsored educational event the day of the attack. One of the people murdered, actually, uh, was also at that uh, prison-sponsored educational event talking about rehabilitation of prisoners, and that's one of the people that Khan murdered. So you've got uh, Khan the terrorist, let out of jail, uh, stabbing people to death on a bridge in London and James Ford, who murdered someone on the bridge, stopping the terrorists. The whole thing is very bizarre. Talk about postmodern worlds colliding. Uh, and of course this is all going to play into the British election. Uh, the conservatives are pointing out that, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the far left anti-Semitic, a leader of the labor party. He really, I mean, the man blames Jews for the sun coming up. He, he's that bad. Um, that he protested uh, harsh sentences against terrorists, including people like Usman Khan back in 2012. Uh, The conservative party is well ahead in the polling right now, and and they will probably go further ahead in this unless labor and and the British media are somehow able to uh, blame Boris Johnson for what happened. I doubt they'll be able to do that. Now, meanwhile, moving further around the globe, The president went to Afghanistan for Thanksgiving and the media pounced. And, and, you know, I I use that media pounce language intentionally because anytime conservatives all uh, focus on a story, the headline from the media is conservatives pounce. Here the media is pouncing, going out of their way to point out the president never been there before. He's been president for all this time. And he hasn't actually uh, done anything. He hasn't gone to Afghanistan. He hasn't visited the troops in Afghanistan. How dare he? So he goes to Afghanistan, and a Newsweek reporter files a report on what the president is doing for the weekend. And she claims that the president is uh, defying the tradition of his predecessors. He's not going to visit the troops. He's going to play golf and spend time alone and watching Fox News. That, That was the actual story from an actual Newsweek reporter who was not clued in enough to know what was actually happening. And Newsweek has fired this reporter, but they released the story and they pushed it out on social media first. So you have a story from the media, from the media, from Newsweek no less, that the president was going to spend his Thanksgiving holiday defying the traditions of his predecessors by not visiting the troops that he was going to spend his time playing golf and that he was going to spend his time alone in his room at his golf course watching Fox News. That was the story. And it turned out not to be true. Uh, Not only did it turn out not to be true, but after it was pointed out that the reporter got the story wrong uh, and that the president actually had gone to Afghanistan, the reporter doubled down insulting people who pointed it out. Saying that she had written the story before the Thanksgiving break based on what the White House said the president was going to do. And she was ridiculing the president for it. And, you know, that's part of the problem here. So it, her reaction now she's been fired, mind you, because the, the story spiraled out of control and began to embarrass Newsweek. But she doubled down on the story because the White House told her that this was so. So instead of saying, look, I'm sorry, we ran with the story based on what the White House told us at the time, and clearly we were misled, my bad, the story's taken down, she began attacking people for ridiculing her, for getting the story wrong. And instead of apologizing for getting the story wrong originally... She doubled down on the story that this is what the White House said. How was she supposed to know he was going to Afghanistan when the White House didn't say he was going to Afghanistan? It's not her fault, but she's the one who wrote the story, and she got it wrong. This is, there is a level of arrogance in here that we repeatedly encounter with the media these days in, in how they are handling these situations. There's a level of arrogance by the media these days and how they circle the wagons and defend themselves uh here's brian stetler on cnn he's their media guy remember his job is to cover the media and hold the media accountable and this is stetler on the story
4: so fox and friends this morning was talking about the president's surprise trip to afghanistan for thanksgiving the banner said media and dems blast trump over a visit to Afghanistan. I'm thinking, who's, who in the media is blasting Trump for doing a great thing as commander in chief? So they were talking about this reporter for Newsweek who, who wrote a story before the president landed in Afghanistan basically surmising that Trump was actually just golfing and tweeting on Thanksgiving. So she put up her story. uh, She updated it once everyone found out the president was actually in Afghanistan. But her original tweet here was lambasted by Trump supporters. And look, this was an error by Newsweek to assume that the president was just gonna be golfing on Thanksgiving. But as a result, the Washington Examiner has fired this Newsweek reporter. It it just strikes me that there's a lot of bad faith acting going on uh, over on Fox and Friends when when they attack the entirety the media for one error by Newsweek.
0: I uh, notice he said Washington Examiner had fired the reporter. Uh, no, it was Newsweek who fired the reporter. But it wasn't just Newsweek, actually. A, a number of reporters, including some from CNN, uh, were blasting the president for going to Afghanistan, playing with the fact he's never been there before, that the, suggesting that uh, the president had been dishonorable in some way, for never having gone to Afghanistan before. That, oh, finally the president goes. And, and the suggestion from one reporter I saw was that the president was using this as a political photo op uh, in the run-up to campaign 2020. That the president had never bothered to go to Afghanistan, and now suddenly he is because uh, the campaign is is blowing up. I'm, I, I'm The hot takes by the media on this stuff are, are deeply troublesome. But it's not just them, and those aren't the only hot takes. We should also uh, review the New York Times coverage of Thanksgiving over the week. Uh, the, this is the, the now I realize this is the opinion section of the New York Times. But just consider, these are the four stories the New York Times chose to run over Thanksgiving. These are the headlines. Uh, By Paul Krugman, Why Trump Should Hate Thanksgiving, subtitle. After all, it celebrates the better angels of our nature. Charles Blow, The Horrible History of Thanksgiving, subtitle. Before you fill your plate, please remember why we mark this day. By David Silverman, The Vicious Reality Behind the Thanksgiving Myth, subtitle. If Americans continue to insist on associating the holiday with pilgrims and Indians, at least we can do, the least we can do is get the story straight. And by Harry Guinness. How to deal with difficult relatives over the holidays. Subtitle, whether politics or favorite side dishes are the issue, this crash course will help everyone get along at the table this holiday season. You know, there was actually a report, a story, I shouldn't say a report, it was an opinion piece in The Nation, the far-left communist rag here in the United States, that you have a moral obligation. You people have a moral obligation to yell at and shame any member of your family at your Thanksgiving celebration, if they are not woke. Now, that's not actually what he said. What what he said was if they disagree with climate change or support of the president. So if you disagree with... with and by the way, I don't know anyone who really disagrees that the climate is changing. The climate is always changing. It, it's uh, the, the entire idea that um, you... If you disagree with the if you disagree with radically upending Western economies, so if you disagree with radically upending Western economies in favor of communism uh, because of global warming, then you need to be shamed at the dinner table. These, these people actually exist. Who are these people? The most malcontented souls possible, I imagine. I suspect these are the people who don't actually go to family dinners. In fact, I saw someone over the uh, over the Thanksgiving break who was, uh, laughing cause he, he was a comedy central, uh, writer, uh, that he, his grandfather, he put on a make Greta great again, Greta Thunberg. It was a green cap. The guy, the, the granddad thought he was wearing a make America great again hat and he wasn't. Uh, and he was being ridiculed by his grandson and, uh, the grandson, got ridiculed by people on Twitter for, for being that guy at Thanksgiving. Who are these people who do this? You know, Dr. Laura was here last week with me, and I th- thought she made a great point. None of us are under a moral obligation to hang out with family members just because we're family for Thanksgiving, although I like my family, and I couldn't be with my immediate family. I was, well, I was with my immediate, my wife and kids, but I was with her family, not my parents and my sister's who were all in Mississippi together, we talked on the phone, but I don't understand the families who don't want to be together for Thanksgiving, but I guess every family has that one problem person who just can't leave politics out of it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we just, we want to avoid the politics and sometimes we can't help it, but there's always that one member of the family, I guess, who's just intent on dragging politics into everything. So today is cyber Monday, uh, w- which I, I do have to laugh at. In fact, I just got a, a sale email from a, uh, website I subscribed to and, and they're making a uh, laughing about the whole idea of, of uh, cyber Monday. Uh, they've even got all, all their stuff displayed as if it's on a, uh, Netscape browser from the nineties, you know, that was the big thing as, as the internet was taken off, uh, the, the cyber Monday stuff, um, <laughs> <laughs> Cyber Monday um nobody cyberspace uh, this was a a term from the the 90s into the early 2000s as the internet was taking off and people were starting to um it, it, to to browse online and buy stuff online and Amazon came online and uh, people were discussing cyberspace. Well, now we just talk about the Internet. Uh, today is the, the Internet Monday, I, I, I think is a better way to say it, where people on Friday could go to stores. By the way, I, I've got a, I got a bone to pick with, with some of these places. Walmart and Target were open on Thanksgiving. Y'all, I, I actually, at a, at a moral level, I'm opposed to this. I realize that you sit around all day and you're bored and you want to go do something. And, you know, in the past you would go to uh, the movies, uh, go to the movies Thursday night. I, you know, people work in the theater and I get that, but y'all seriously uh, give people a day off. And I guess Christmas will be that day, but Thanksgiving used to be that day as well. You had Thanksgiving, you had Christmas, where nobody had to work except in, in a few select industries. And now suddenly, in the the retail space, you got to go work at Target, you got to go work at Walmart. Walmart, at least with Target, people who chose to work they got paid time and a half. There's a story out over the weekend that Walmart did not pay its employees uh, overtime. They just got regular wages, and if they wanted to use vacation day to avoid it, they could use vacation day to avoid it. Man, uh, down here in Macon, there was a big fight at one of the Walmarts. It it went viral online. People uh, taking videos of this at at a Walmart, not near my house on the other side of town, but people punching each other, everybody fighting over the same TV. Crazy. I don't find the allure of going to uh, Black Friday deals, and I know some people do, some people love it, but typically what I have found with a lot of these Black Friday deals is you get inferior products. Like, for example, uh, years ago, uh, there was an electronics store that was set, had a massive, I want to say it was a 70-inch flat screen LCD TV. For less than a thousand dollars, at a the time they were typically going for for two thousand dollars, and it was on sale for like nine ninety nine or seven ninety nine, something like that. And people were lined up on Thanksgiving trying to get into the big box electronics store to get this flat screen TV. And when you actually looked at the specs of this TV, it wasn't a good TV. It may have been seventy inches, but it wasn't a ten eighty p. I think it was ten eighty i. It only had two HDMI ports. It didn't have four HDMI ports. It just it wasn't a good TV. And I guess if, if you got no Xbox or Apple TV or Roku or Amazon Fire Stick or anything like that to plug into it, it was a great deal for you. Uh, if you didn't want high resolution, you just wanted the basic. I think it was it was either 1080i or 720p, and it, it wasn't a great deal. And yet people were busting down the door to get into this thing, and it, it's it's. I'm just not a fan of it. Well, today is cyber Monday and people do the same thing online, but has it Amazon, Amazon day, they've got what prime day, prime day, that's Amazon's black Friday. And it happens in July. I think it's like halfway through. So people do their Christmas shopping on Amazon prime day on July in July or some such. I just. I, I'm, I'm not a fan. I actually asked Chris Burns from Dynamic Money if he would come by this week. I think he's going to connect in tomorrow um, and talk to us about uh, budgeting for, for Christmas. There's a report out that uh majority of Americans, a majority, we're talking a nation of 350 million people and a majority of Americans are still paying down debts from last Christmas which is crazy. And so I wanted to talk to him about that. Well, uh, I'll talk to him uh, later. Now, you know, at the bottom of the next hour, uh, Congressman Chip Roy from Texas is going to join me. We're going to have to, uh, I've got a fancy setup here where he can connect via my cell phone. since we're having issues with lines in the office, uh, he's going to have to call my cell, I suppose, to make this happen. But uh, we're going to talk to him. ...about his campaign in Texas because he's running against Wendy Davis, abortion Barbie. Uh, This is a must-win seat for the Democrats and the Republicans. It's a must-hold seat in Congress. But before we get into any of that, we got to talk about the Kelly Loeffler situation. It continues to spiral as Brian Kemp is now being blown up by major conservative groups in Washington, D.C. over his appointment of Kelly Loeffler. The opposition research on Loeffler is coming fast and furious from folks in Washington that she's squishy. She's apparently bad on... Well, at least they're saying. uh, There's no evidence of it, actually, but they're saying she's bad on life, she's bad on social issues, bad on transgender issues from a conservative perspective. Uh, I want to delve into what I know about the Loeffler situation when we come back. In the meantime... Colin Kaepernick came to Atlanta, did the big dog and pony show, throwing the football for people to see, uh, turned it into a PR uh, spectacle where he refused to actually do it at the Falcons training facility. So most of the NFL teams that flew in to see him didn't actually get to see him. He's got no deals, and now he's speaking at an un-Thanksgiving event of Native Americans, of American Indians, I guess we can say. He's got nowhere with his whole thing. All right. When we come back here on the Eric Erickson show, let's get into the state of play in Georgia and the Senate race. I was reminded again over the weekend how ingenious Quip's design is. I'm talking about the electric toothbrush. Uh, It vibrates every 30 seconds. It pulses, so you know to change it around in your mouth. You get a very even brushing. Listen, I've been using the Quip for uh, three years now, maybe, or so. I'm on my second one, actually. I accidentally broke my first one. Uh, My fault, not their fault. Uh, In any event, they sent me a new one, and uh, over the weekend, I, I guess I left it running, or... I don't know. The battery died. I'm assuming it just kept getting turned on in my bag as I was traveling. And But man, you just you slide the top of it off, and it's just a single AAA battery. And and the battery lasts for months. And you get a new brush head every three months. And with it, they send you a new AAA battery. And if you're a responsible person, unlike me, your battery lasts. and You don't have to worry about it. But it's, it's such a great design. And every time I go to the dentist and the orthodontist, I think I'm bleaching my teeth, which I'm not doing. I'm just getting a really good, even brushing of my teeth with my quipple your toothbrush. You can too. And every three months you can get a new brush head for just five bucks. You even get your first one for free. If you go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now, you'll get your first brush head refill pack for free. It's a great deal. Quip is great. You can leave it as a stocking stuffer even for someone else. And you get your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson. Quip, the Good Habits Company, get into a good habit of brushing your teeth with uh, Brian Kemp right now. Brian Kemp, of course, I think is probably playing this politically well. There are some problems, though, we need to discuss. Uh, and it comes, uh, let, me, let me give you the lay of the land here. Based on what I know, uh, based on the people that I've talked to. Kelly Loeffler applied at the very last minute before, um, before the governor stopped taking applications for the Senate race. And that has suggested to a lot of people that the fix was in, that it was always going to be Loeffler and they went through this dog and pony show. What I am told reliably is that, uh, the governor's office based on, uh, who had applied, decided that they needed to go out and find some additional potential candidates. In particular, I'm told, reliably, that the governor's office, uh, those around the governor, I'm not going to say the governor himself, but those around the governor uh, were not fans of Doug Collins being the the appointee uh, from the get-go. The reason they were not fans from the get-go, uh, well, I was told by one person, not in the governor's office, that there's a Chris Riley situation. Uh, and I don't know whether that's true or not, but the person I know, uh, seemed to be convinced of it. Chris Riley being the, um, a former chief of staff to governor deal. There's some, his, there are some issues there between Jeff Duncan and Brian Kemp with Chris Riley. Uh, and that, uh, allegedly there, there were suggestions that, uh, Riley may be involved if, if, Collins were the nominee. I don't, again, this is not from anyone uh, around the governor, but from those who I think would know. But the other issue, the issue that I do know for certain is that there was a lot of polling done and a lot of thinking behind the scenes within the governor's office that Doug Collins would get the Republican base and not beyond the base. That essentially, uh the the party and uh, the donors to the party would have to spend a lot of money to get Doug Collins into the Senate because he has become a lightning rod in the impeachment issue and in particular they were worried in the suburbs of Atlanta that Doug Collins could be an impediment for everyone now again I think anyone who knows Doug Collins knows Doug Collins is a great guy, and he would be able to come across on the campaign trail authentically. Um, but there was a lot of thinking uh, among people around the governor that uh, him being so aggressively In favor of the president in the impeachment issue in the suburbs uh, would actually work to the Republicans detriment because much like Brian Kemp in 2018 was viewed as Trump's boy, Doug Collins would be viewed as Trump's boy and not his own man. And Brian Kemp has spent the last year showing people he's his own man, including now this standing up to the president's people and the president over Doug Collins. Uh, That that he's got his own identity separate from the president. Uh, Doug Collins, on the other hand, is viewed as being tied to the president, and they view that as a bad thing in the suburbs, which should tell you the state of play in the suburbs in Georgia come 2020, uh, when internally even Republicans are realizing the president can be a liability in the suburbs with certain people that they want. So you got a problem there. So they looked at the the slate of candidates. Uh, My my pick was Jason Inovatarte from Paulding County. I think he would have been great. Uh, But um, it was not to be. The governor settled on Kelly Loeffler. He and his wife apparently know her. uh, But she's not well known in politics. She is someone the Republicans tried to recruit in 2014, uh, and she declined, she declined in part because she and her husband owned the company that purchased the New York stock exchange. And they did so around that time and, and believe she needed to stay put to help with that transaction. And so she did not run and David Perdue ran instead. They were looking for an outside corporate person to run. Uh, so it's going to be Kelly Loeffler. She will be the pick socially conservative groups are not happy. They're not happy for a number of reasons and they got some legitimate gripes here. She sits on the board of Grady Hospital. A Grady Hospital is a training ground for abortionists in Georgia. She is involved uh, with Georgia uh, Research Alliance, which uh, has advocated for some scientists who do embryonic stem cell research. And she has also been involved in a group that advocates for transgender rights, or so I'm told. This is what the opposition research says. Governor Kim's people say that she is a devout Catholic, uh, socially conservative, and has a worldview to go with it, Uh, that she is conservative, uh, but she's also a corporate business leader. And by virtue of being as prominent in the business community as she is, uh, she has been on prominent boards like the Georgia Research Alliance and Grady Hospital and George Power and things like that, where you would expect someone of her stature and position to be, whether she's conservative or not. They say that she will be socially conservative. Here's, let's, I don't want to dance around this with you people. I'll just be candid with you. If the governor's got this wrong, he's toast in 2022. If the governor's got this wrong, the Republicans are going to lose the Senate seat in 2020. Now, why do I say that? Doug Collins is signaling again that he may still run for the Senate. Doug Collins wants it. And in fact, I got to say that uh, to some degree, Doug Collins and those around him uh, are why we are in this position. The governor and his team never had an intention of giving this to Doug Collins. And because Collins and his team have been uh, insistent that it is Doug Collins' seat and he should have it and he may run no matter what, the governor's team went out. They wanted to find someone who had large pockets of cash to self-fund. And could also have a a demographic play that Doug Collins couldn't go against. So rich woman who is self-made against Doug Collins. How will that play in the suburbs? Well, that's fine for the general election, but you got to get through a, you got to get through a Republican process as well. Keep in mind though that there will not be a Republican primary. There will be a Republican process, but not a primary. The Republican process is Republican voters are going to have to vet Kelly Loeffler and decide whether or not. Um, whether or not it works. And I suspect that he's probably bet big and he's won on this because he can expand the base of voters in the suburbs who would vote Republican and he can do so without rocking the boat. Uh, In doing so without rocking the boat... I mean, Republican voters will look at her, they will hear from her, and they will realize she really is one of us. She's not a Democrat. Uh, Republicans are circulating a picture of Kelly Loeffler standing next to Stacey Abrams. Uh, Stacey Abrams and Kelly Loeffler don't really know each other, I'm told. Uh, They happen to be in an event together. Uh, In the same way, there are pictures of Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams together. Here's the thing, though. Let's just keep this real honest. One of the problems with Mitt Romney in 2008 and then again in 2012 is Mitt Romney said he was a conservative... But he sounded like he learned conservatism from Rosetta Stone. You know what Rosetta Stone is? Rosetta Stone is the foreign language course. You can listen to the tapes. You can learn your foreign language. Mitt Romney throughout the campaign in 2012, remember he was a severe conservative, that sort of stuff. He sounded like he had learned conservatism from Rosetta Stone, that it wasn't really a part of him. And conservatives have been burned so often, so many times by so many people who said they were one of them and turned out not to be one of them, uh, that, that it were it hurt them. Listen, this was one of my concerns with David Perdue in 2014 and why I didn't support him on the campaign trail. I'm delighted to have been proven wrong by David Perdue, but he was someone who, uh, he, he was not fundamentally, institutionally, philosophically, didn't sound like it to me. conservative. turned out he is. I was wrong. Let's hope we're, we're, a lot of conservatives are wrong about Kelly Lawler. But you do need to understand that conservatives have been burned so many times by people who said they were one of them and were not that they're deeply skeptical. At the same time, you have a situation where conservatives always demand outsiders. And we want an outsider. We got to have an outsider. We need an outsider. The establishment's bad. Let's get an outsider. Here comes Brian Kemp. And Brian Kemp picks an outsider and conservatives are livid uh, because the only way to have a conservative who checks the boxes of most of the conservative groups is to have someone who is an insider, not an outsider. For example, uh, one of the questions I've gotten from multiple conservatives is, She's on the board of Grady Hospital. She's on the board of the Georgia Research Alliance. She's on the uh, she's on this board. She's on that board. She's on the Georgia Power Board. Is she on the board, a donor of, or a big supporter of any pro-life groups? Ah, that's a relevant question. But, you know, the majority of the people who are highly involved in those happen to be uh, people in politics. Does she have any, any uh, relationship to the Georgia Life Alliance? I, I, I wish she would. She should. But I don't know. Does she have any relationship to any of the other pro-life groups? She should, but I don't think she does. And you know, so at my website, theresurgent.com, I have a rule, and the rule is very straightforward. The rule is that you've got to be pro-life to write on the front page of The Resurgent. You have to be pro-life to write on the front page of The Resurgent because uh, it shapes your worldview. If you believe that all life is sacred and that life begins at conception, you have a different way of looking at the world than if you think life is expendable, casual, accidental, uh, and and a, a child in utero is just tissue. It shapes the way you see the world, it shapes the way you reason, it, it shapes the way you navigate issues, it shapes the way you decide on policy positions that are are not even directly linked to life issues, but it shapes your worldview in such a way that it shapes those issues. And we don't know these things about Kelly Loeffler. We, we don't know anything about Kelly Loeffler. We don't know why. It looks like now it's been a done deal. I I think it was somewhat of a fundamental mistake to let this drag out through the Thanksgiving break so that people could compile even more opposition research on her. And I'm sure more is going to come. Although I do hear that uh, at some point today, Loeffler is going to be announced. I don't know when, but I hear it's going to happen today or at least they're going to make more formal hints that it's her they they need to go on and get her out they need to get her out they need to get her known they need to get her vetted And she needs to go make inroads with conservative groups. She needs to sit down with them, and she needs to have some philosophical conversations with them. And she needs to be prepared for those conversations. Uh, She needs to not sound like a conservative who learned conservatism from Rosetta Stone. She needs to sound like this is fundamentally a part of her being, that she recognizes all life is precious and life begins at conception, and that life should be defended at all costs. She's a supporter of the fetal heartbeat legislation, but is that a, a support as a matter of conviction or a matter of convenience? These are the things that we as a people need to know about Kelly Lawler as she gets out on the campaign trail. If she doesn't have good answers for these things, she's going to get a challenge from the right. And she knows that, so she better be prepared. And I suspect one of the reasons we haven't had her rush out of the gate thus far is because she's got to get prepared. And they are at this moment preparing her. I hope. There is one thing that I think that Kelly Lawler and her team need to do. They need to understand and they need to get and we'll discuss that when we come back. So I, I got some thoughts on the uh, on the Lawler situation, and um, here, here's my advice to her. I think Kelly Lawler needs to make sure. If she's going to be the nominee, she's going to move forward. She needs to make sure that she is surrounded with Brian Kemp's people. You know, there's a, I forget the lady Lynn Holmrick. I think she was a Home Depot executive. She's running for Congress in the 7th. Maybe she'll get some traction, but, uh, so she's, she's wealthy. She can, to some degree, self-fund apparently. And she reached out, uh, to, or, or had people reach out to her, from Washington, D.C. and has some outside consultants who don't really know Georgia running her race. And and I saw the people running this lady's race and I thought, man, she is going to uh, be bled dry and probably lose. And that is my concern with self-funders. You know, Republican self-funders actually have a terrible track record of getting elected. And the reason Republican self-funders have a terrible track record of getting elected to any office is because they go out and they hire the, these hotshot consultants from Washington, D.C., and in so doing, uh, the consultants from Washington, D.C., they make a bunch of money whether the candidate loses or wins, They and they've got a pile of candidates uh, running. They, they don't just have this person as a candidate. This person, because they're wealthy, tends to be a little more out of touch with reality, and I don't mean that disparagingly, but... When you live in a Buckhead mansion or wherever and you're not you're not doing your own grocery shopping or what have you, or you're going to Whole Foods to buy everything and you're not going to your local Ingalls, uh, well, you, you tend to be out of touch with the common man and you tend to say or do things that are problematic. And we've had this situation in the past. Uh, well, I mean, look at Mike Bloomberg running. We'll get into Bloomberg here in a little bit. But you just get out of touch, and you go to Washington, and you hire these hotshot national consultants who don't know anything about Georgia. That they, they don't have the idiosyncrasies of Georgia. Like, for example, I worked for a guy one time. Uh, he actually won. Uh, he won. Well, I don't mind telling you. It's, it's, it's Saxby Chambliss. Uh, Saxby Chambliss, I, I uh, volunteered with Saxby in 1994. I was in the College of Republicans uh, at Mercer in Macon and he had this great fundraising consultant she was she actually was very good at raising money but they went down to cordiel and she was from chicago and the person who was supposed to introduce saxby wound up not being able to be there and so she decided she would get on stage and and do the introduction to the donors and she got on stage and she told the people how excited saxby was to be in cordelay Cordelet not Cordial. Went over exactly as you can imagine. Of course, now th- this was Saxby, so he he did the all shucks. We, we brought a Yankee down to help us raise money, and uh, she's going bankrupt the campaign, and on and on, and, and just <laughs> I mean the crowd eh, ate it up when, when he responded. It was, it was a very funny moment, but that's kind of the problem. My wife laughs at me all the time over over how I say Albany. Uh, I just say Albany. She's like, nope, it's Albany or whatever. Uh, Cairo instead of Cairo, Vienna instead of Vienna. We got Unadilla down in South Georgia, where my wife's family's from in Montezuma. And, and and we got a Houston County instead of Houston County. And you got to know these sorts of things. You get a Washington DC consultant to come down. They, they have no idea. And so you make little mistakes over time, and the little mistakes are just a drip, 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 and they add up. You gotta find someone who actually uh, understands and actually knows the area. But more than that, you've also gotta find someone who understands the dynamics here. If Kelly Loeffler is the person, and she is, then she's going to be on the ballot in 2020 and 2022. She'll be on the ballot with David Perdue and Donald Trump in 2020. She'll be on the ballot with Brian Kemp in 2022. She cannot do anything in Washington, D.C. that sabotages this. She can't do anything that sabotages Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp is taking a big bet on Kelly Lothar. I know nothing about her. Uh, In fact, I got a reporter texting me right now asking if I know how to contact her. I have no idea. I've never met the woman. I've never talked to the woman. I don't know anything about the woman other than what I've been told. What I'm told is she is a conservative. What I'm told is she is a business person. What I'm told is the reason she's on these boards is by virtue of being in business uh, and and her position in life. This is she got asked to be on these things. They needed a woman. They needed a woman in business. There aren't a ton of women in business in Georgia at her level. And so she's on a lot of boards for a lot of groups that are full of, of elites and elites love all these things. And she may not, but she's on the boards. Do we know if she ever stood up? Do we know if she ever said anything? I I got nothing for you. I don't know. What I do know is that Brian Kemp is fundamentally a person who understands he's got to have a conservative with him. What I do know is that fundamentally Brian Kemp is, he may not be as socially conservative as me in some aspects, but Brian Kemp is uh, at an intuitive level conservative. He's not progressive. And Brian Kemp understands that Georgia needs a Georgian. And and frankly, uh, my position on this entire affair is that Brian Kemp has earned my trust to take a risk. He ran against Casey Cagle when people said he had no chance, and he won. He uh, signed the feel Heartbeat legislation when people said that uh, it would destroy him and the GOP, and he won. Time and time again, Brian Kemp has stood up and taken risks, and those risks have paid off for him. And I think this is another one of those examples where we should uh, let Brian Kemp take a risk and see if it pays off. I assume that it will. I assume she'll be conservative, and I assume we'll be finding out any time, and I've invited her on this program to roll her out. When we come back, we got to talk about another race out there. All righty. We are back. Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across Georgia, the full number 877 97 eric 877 37425 Joining me now from Texas, uh, an actual friend of mine in Congress. You know, people say, oh, members of Congress are friends of mine. I know this is an actual friend who happens to be a congressman. Congressman Chip Roy, who's uh, announcing your reelection today down in Texas, aren't you?
5: I am, Eric. Thanks for having me on. I hope you and Christine you're- wonderful family had a, had a blessed Thanksgiving weekend. We did. I hope you did too. We did. We had a good time with family and friends. And, uh, you know, there is despite all of the negativity, there is much to be thankful for. And I think, uh, we would do well to remember that as people get wrapped around the Twitter and social media axle, and not all things revolve around Washington DC and what's said on meet the press on Sunday morning, but rather what, happens in our homes and our church pews and, and uh, Thanksgiving is a good reminder of that.
0: Yeah. Like, like that LSU, Texas A&M game that a mutual friend of ours, who's the outgoing secretary of energy. I, 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 I resisted texting him about it this weekend.
5: Well, you know, that hits a little close to home with my lovely bride. who's also an Aggie. <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Hey, look, we're, I mean, I'm speaking for this Roy, we're all tigers right now. I want LSU to, to, uh, ride in and have i want them to have a good uh uh march through i i guess though there in georgia you got some yeah you got yeah some we, mix, mix.
0: you're you're putting me in a difficult position now
5: here. yeah <laughs> i am hey you went there you went there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. That That's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about your campaign. Wendy Davis, who ran for governor, uh, who, who came to fame by uh, filibustering a pro-life measure in the Texas legislature, she, she ran for governor and lost, uh, flirted with, I guess, running for the Senate and didn't, didn't, and now she wants to run for your congressional seat. And meanwhile, you're over there serving the people of Texas, but the country as well with uh, being in Congress. Well, that's right. You know, I announced uh, two years ago this last week, I had 90 days
5: to get through a crowded primary uh, when Lamar Smith had announced he he was retiring. I represent the area between Austin and San Antonio, from downtown Austin down to 14 Houston in San Antonio and all through the hill country, uh, Fredericksburg and and, uh, Kerrville. And it's a great district. Uh, Wendy Davis has decided she uh, wants to run again after getting summarily uh, dismissed by – uh, Governor Abbott in 2014. Uh, I think she uh, is uh, looking to try to continue to make a political name for herself. But at the end of the day, she's completely out of step with the vast majority of Texans, particularly those in the district I represent. You well, you know as well as I do. She made her name on the floor of the Texas Senate, uh, filibustering to try to uh, uh, preserve and promote third trimester abortion. I uh, don't think that's a really good reason to be filibustering on the floor of a body. I was proud to stand next to Ted Cruz in his effort to try to stop out-of-control health care prices and protect freedom for Americans and Texans. Um, And that's a good reason to be on on the floor filibustering. But uh, we're excited. Uh, We're announcing today we're filing this afternoon. Uh, We've got, you know, well over a million dollars cash on hand but we got to get a lot more. So anybody out there wants to go visit dot com, I'd appreciate anything from five bucks to 5,600, but we're, uh, we're getting geared up to, uh, to get at this. And look, I'm honored to run against Wendy Davis. She's an out of step liberal who uh, believes in uh, boys running against girls in track meets and believes the government should take your gun uh, and believes that, uh, the uh, new Green Deal is somehow going to be good for Americans at the price of their energy. So I don't, like, I don't think uh, that's going to sell in Texas.
0: Let me ask you about this one, because one of the things I'm finding, we've seen this in Georgia as well with certain candidates, is that in district they say all sorts of conservative things and then they fundraise nationally with a bunch of progressives uh, supporting the Green New Deal and stuff like that. And you would never know it by, by just paying attention to what they say on the campaign trail.
5: Well, that's right. Of course, one of the dirty little secrets, as you know, is that uh, politicians in both parties do a whole lot of campaign in one way and going to Washington to do in the other. And that is something that I've tried to do, as you know, and as a friend, I ask you always to hold me accountable, um, that when I went to D.C., I would try to do it differently. And uh, I went to the floor of the House to object to $19.5 billion getting passed by unanimous consent. I went to the floor of the House to demand 50 or 60 votes so that we can get border security funding. Uh, and I've tried to stand up and fight for a balanced budget and for uh, making sure that we secure the border and and uh, give our men and women a clear mission and reduce healthcare prices. And those are all the things I campaigned on. Wendy Davis, on the other hand, will try to say that she's somehow moderate when she's campaigning in the Hill country in Texas, but she's being pretty aggressive in her uh, promotion of her progressive views online on Twitter. She's embraced the uh, Brady, uh, uh, organizations, uh, and, and, and taking positions about, you know, uh, confiscating our weapons. And she's out there hardcore, obviously on our abortion views. Uh, she can't run from those. And, uh, I could go down a list on green, green new deal or other things. She's out of step. People in Texas are going to know it, but she can look, she can spend a lot of money cause she'll be able to raise a lot of money as a cause celeb She has 200 and something thousand Twitter followers and, so she'll raise money and she'll spend a lot of money in two expensive media markets. So I'll need help to get that message out. And then uh, when we do that,
0: we'll uh, we'll send her packing again. Well, I want to ask you, I pulled up your Twitter feed. <laughs> um, one of the things Uh-oh. that you regularly tweet about as far as an issue that galvanized you, and it's one you and I have spent a lot of time offline talking about, is the national debt. And it seems like neither party is committed to actually dealing with what even the joint chiefs are saying is becoming a national security issue.
5: Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you are correct. There is not a serious resolve beyond a handful of my colleagues, particularly in the freedom caucus to attack this very serious problem. And the problem isn't just the debt that we're racking up $23 trillion now. $100 $100 million an hour we're racking up, Eric, literally, $100 million an hour. It's not just that number that's astounding. It's we're funding the very government and bureaucrats that are constantly attacking our freedoms and our way of life. We're funding the agencies that we then bemoan why it's so bureaucratic and difficult to get things done. We're funding the bureaucratic state that, frankly, is uh, you know, going after the president right now. There's a whole lot of things that we could learn from this, but look, we have a fundamental duty to balance the budget. And so I've got some reforms that I'm going to put forward pretty soon. Uh, I introduced a resolution not long ago saying we should put a debt clock in each of the appropriations and budget committee rooms. Some people think that's a gimmick. I don't think so. I think members should have to stare at that clock when they're sitting at the diets in those committee rooms and look at that number ticking up. And I think I'm going to introduce legislation this week or soon that's going to uh, limit the ability of members of Congress to raise money while they're failing to do their job to balance the budget. Uh, and I think there are other things we can do to try to start pushing back on the failures of uh, our colleagues in Washington.
0: So uh, how would this work, L- limit their ability to raise money while doing that? Well, the
5: idea is, and we're still working on it, so uh, any feedback appreciated, but the idea is simply this. if you come in when you're elected in new Congress, first of all, I think we should go to biennial budgeting and appropriations. Texas does that very effectively. We budget and appropriate for a two-year cycle. That matches up with the term of a congressman or, or a state rep in Texas. So you minimize the velocity of all of the debates over spending. You can have one big debate about how much we should spend, do it for the Congress, and then move on to oversight and other items, and it would give you more time to get it done. Secondly, though, I think when you come in in January and you're sworn in, you shouldn't immediately set out raising money. You should be limited and, and, and unable to raise money until either the end of that fiscal year in September uh, or uh, whether if you've actually passed a balanced budget and gotten it through the House. and And if you've done those things, then you can raise money. We're still working on the details of that. But in Texas, you're not allowed to raise money when you're in the legislative session every two years. You're supposed to sit there doing your job instead of going around doing fundraisers. I think Congress could use a dose of that.
0: Yeah, you know, it is unusual. Most states, I think, including Georgia and, and Texas, both have that prohibition that you can. And, and I, I guess congressmen would say, well, it's a full-time job. We're always here. I, and I, it's always boggled my mind as to why we need Congress in Washington all the time. And, of course, that they're not. But, I mean, why do we need it? The, the country was perfectly fine until the 1920s and 30s without a full-time Congress. I just I have a hard time wondering why do we need so many more new laws after 200-some-odd years don't we have enough
5: uh yes we have too many laws we should cut a lot of those laws if you don't follow the uh, what is it crime a day you should on twitter yeah uh he he posts uh, uh, ludicrous law virtually every day um but yeah we have too many laws we have, frankly have too much noise i've never been in a place in my life where there's more activity with less productivity than the halls of congress there is committee hearings and meetings and you run around and you go vote and you're you know, constantly having to just run like your head, hair's on fire and we never actually do anything meaningful. If we did nothing but focus on finding a way to get to a 10 year balance and then hold balance in terms of spending, well, that, that would at least be something. And so we should focus and do our jobs. I don't know the exact mechanism, but I believe we should be prohibited from raising money for the first, you know, six or nine months of a Congress. And so we can focus on doing our job and then, you know, lift the valve off and you can go raise money. Or if you get your job done and you spend and balance the budget, get your appropriations done, okay, now you can go back raising money. Um, so we're going to work on that and put put the uh, put a bow around it and get it out.
0: So I'm talking to, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Congressman Chip Roy, and you're announcing your re-election today. Give me the website again where people can go if they want to help and, and let people know how they can help.
5: It's chiproy, C-H-I-P-R-O-Y, chiproy.com. Uh, we're, we're getting out there. This is our official announcement day where we're announcing our reelection. Uh, nobody should be too surprised. I've been out raising money. But uh, I wanted to hold off and, and uh, do it. I don't think we should be campaigning all the time. And so I wanted to wait. Our filing deadline in Texas is next Monday. So I thought we should get out there and officially announce it. We're going to do a rally in San Antonio today. But look, we've got so much that we can do if we just get a handful of people. You don't even need a majority a handful of conservative people standing up and fighting, you can change things. The 32nd example, I know you're you're on a time crunch, is this summer when little old backbencher freshman Chip Roy in his first year had the uh, Speaker of the House's staff coming to him to say, what will you do to stop the pain when I forced 50 or 60 votes in June because we needed the dollars for the supplemental to deal with the border crisis? Nobody was fighting. We stood up and fight as the Freedom Caucus members joined, and we forced a vote, and we got it done, and they were able to start getting the numbers going down. Now the numbers are far less than they were in May. It is not hard to do our job. We just have to do it.
0: Well, we want to keep you there doing your job, and I appreciate you stopping by. Good luck to you on the campaign trail as well, and and at some point I'll have to discuss with you that my wife is trying to convince the kids that our family vacation this coming year needs to be out in your neck of the woods.
5: Well, you should do it, and you always got a spot here. Come visit us, give your uh, beautiful uh, wife a hug, and, and uh, we'll talk to you all soon.
0: All righty. Chip Roy, Congressman from Texas. And and yes, by the way, uh, if you're wondering, that is the same Congressman Chip Roy who held up the disaster relief down in South Georgia over the summer. But he did so, just as he was saying here on, on Principal Issue, he wasn't opposed to the funding. He was deeply opposed to, if you'll recall, the Democrats had slid a bunch of provisions in— to the emergency supplemental bill, and uh, he was willing to take the fire from even folks here in Georgia uh, by opposing a, a unanimous consent resolution because the Democrats had slid a bunch of spinning in And that's what they do, and that's one of his concerns, is time and time again, Democrats in Congress and Republicans in Congress, both, they do these emergency supplementals like with disaster in South Georgia – And they they pile a bunch of unrelated things in, and they know that everyone's going to want to pass this out quickly, and no one's going to actually want to read the legislation and realize that there were carve-outs for Nancy Pelosi's friends and and John Boehner's friends or whoever the the Republican leader's friends are, and you just got out-of-control spending. Uh, He supported the actual emergency disaster relief down in South Georgia. He's just opposed all the other stuff that got piled in, sight unseen, and the exposure caused them to pull some of those things out. The, the final legislation actually uh, went down in price because they yanked out some of those stupid provisions they tried to pile in and get, get uh, spilled over. And I realize he was vilified by some people down in South Georgia for doing that. The governor uh, Kemp blasted him, but uh, I've got his back on this. It, it's mind-numbing to me as it is for him to see people in Congress say, we got to help the farmers in South Georgia. And they don't really want to help the farmers in South Georgia. They want to pile a bunch of stuff in for their friends and cronies and then use the farmers in South Georgia's cover to reward their friends. And he shined the spotlight on it and got vilified for doing so. And he held his ground. And frankly, I think we need more people like that in Congress. You know, one of the first things he did when he got into Congress, a uh, chief of staff, Wade and I are also friends. And he had Wade go out and try to find a debt clock for his office, which were hard to come by. They've got one in downtown Atlanta now. They've got a new national debt clock in Atlanta showing you how the national debt is accumulating. We need more guys like Chip in Congress. Uh, He's not in Georgia. He's in Texas, but he's in a must-win seat for the GOP and for the Democrats. They've got a a far-left radical Wendy Davis running against him. He could use all the help he could get uh, as he raises money to campaign there. Uh, Chiproy.com is his website, and we won't hold it against him. Well, he's actually a Virginia guy. His wife's the Aggie, but uh, I guess we need to deal with the LSU-Georgia race when we come back, don't we? The phone number here is 877 Eric, 877 973 7425. buddy of mine who lives over in Alabama tweeted out uh, the largest mega churches in Alabama are Jordan Hare Stadium and uh, Bryant Denny Stadium. Man, that Auburn, Alabama game, goodness gracious. We were, I took the kids to, there's this pizza restaurant down in Warner Robins. And and years ago, they used to mill their own wheat, make their own flour. I don't think they do that anymore. Uh, It's still a great pizza place. My father's place on Moody Road in Warner Robins, if you're ever down that way. And uh, so I took the kids down there. Christy didn't want to go. I took the kids down there. And everybody in that place was staring at their phones watching the live stream of the Alabama Auburn game. I mean, the whole place was quiet. It was hilarious. Uh, yeah, the only thing you could hear off people's phones were was the Auburn-Alabama game, which was uh, absolutely crazy to think you're in a restaurant and everybody's sitting there watching this game. Well, yeah, you couldn't help it if you, if you got an iPhone – and you, you set up your sports package or whatnot through Apple TV, you get a text message, and I'm sitting at the restaurant, and get a text message that Alabama or that Auburn has pulled ahead of Alabama. And everybody must have gotten the exact same text message because suddenly everybody stops what they're doing and pulls out, gets on their phones and starts pulling up the live stream. If they can, the, the if they got CBS Sports or somehow people were in there trying to get it, one guy had it, turned on the volume, and everybody's just listening to the game as they're eating their pizza. Oblivious to the fact that the carbonation has gone out on the fountain drink, so everybody's having to drink either water or lemonade at the restaurant that night. But so then uh, Saturday, I, I started the deco- – by the way, a- am I allowed to admit this? I, I don't know that I should say this, but I'm going to. Are we allowed to hate people who already have their Christmas cards out? I mean, I realize it's now technically December, but my Lord, um, I don't even know if we're doing Christmas cards this year. Normally we do Christmas cards, but, uh, we, um, uh, we didn't get a Family picture taken, and I guess we probably should have over Thanksgiving. Normally, I'm the one who does it, but we all stayed super casual and, and relaxed over Thanksgiving, so we didn't do it. And I've already got people. We had Christmas cards. Like, we got back from Thanksgiving on on Friday. We went up to my in-laws uh, Wednesday and Thursday, came back Friday, got here Friday evening, went and checked the mail, and already had the first Christmas card. It's like, seriously? Already? It is Monday, December second, and we've already got people. Chris, this is just—I hate you, people who are that organized. I—I—I I, I realize it's, it's jealousy, but it comes across as hate, and I just need to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I just—I'm—I'm I'm not that organized, and we do everything through through Minted, which has our address book, and so it automatically labels everything. I'm just—we're not there yet, folks. I'm sorry, we're—we're we're not there. Uh, <laughs> but so I went outside at halftime from the Georgia Georgia tech game and started decorating and on Saturday and I lost track of time and I did not go back inside. And then I started seeing all of my neighbors with their Georgia, uh, apparel on and they were all outside and thought, man, this game really was a massive blowout. Wasn't it? Um, it just, Hey, Siri, what was the Georgia Georgia Tech football score? Well, Siri normally does this pretty progressively, but Siri doesn't want to work. Let's just I was hoping that we could just relive this with Siri giving us the score, but Siri doesn't want to cooperate. So I'll just tell you, 52 to 7. I assume everybody here knows it was 52 to 7, but I just want to reiterate it was 52 to 7 cuz my friend Abby in in Athens where our flagship station is WGAU, I know she was at the game and I'm sure she just wants to hear these words uttered repeatedly, 52 to 7. No offense to my Georgia Tech for my father-in-law is a Georgia Tech guy. And my daughter, when she heard the score texted to see how he liked the game, did not go over well at all. <laughs> Oh rubbing it in and now we've got this conundrum because you know I'm a native of Louisiana and my rule of thumb has always been that if LSU played Georgia in Georgia I'd root for Georgia and if Georgia played LSU at LSU I would root for LSU but we're kind of at the I'm kind of gonna be tough can I just root for the winner it's gonna be LSU can I just root for the winner of this game that's coming up will you all hate me if I go there. All right. Enough of this. We, we got to move on to other stuff. Um, we've got the Democrats on the campaign trail and we've got uh, Steve Bullock. I bet you didn't even know that Bullock was running. Bullock was the governor of Montana. And man, I had Republicans telling me that, gosh, we hope this guy doesn't get traction. He could really give Trump a run for his money. And I was telling him, you know, relax. This guy is not going to get any traction. Uh, the Democrats, they want celebrity. Uh, Bullock has has skeletons in the closet and no celebrity. And then Joe Sestak. I forgot Sestak was even running and he's already dropped out. And then there's the other guy, Deval Patrick. Uh, the great hope of the Democratic Party is not getting any traction. No one's showing up to his events and the media just isn't sure what to make of any of this. We'll explore when we come back. I was reminded again over the weekend how ingenious Quip's design is. I'm talking about the electric toothbrush. Uh, it vibrates every 30 seconds. It pulses, so you know to change it around in your mouth. You get a very even brushing. Listen, I've been using the Quip for uh, three years now, maybe, or so. I'm on my second one, actually. I accidentally broke my first one. Uh, my fault, not their fault. Uh, in any event, they sent me a new one, and uh, over the weekend, I, I guess I left it running, or... I don't know. The battery died. I'm assuming it just kept getting turned on in my bag as I was traveling. And But man, you just you slide the top of it off, and it's just a single AAA battery. And and the battery lasts for months, and you get a new brush head every three months. And with it, they send you a new AAA battery. And if you're a responsible person, unlike me, your battery lasts, and you don't have to worry about it. But it, it's such a great design. And every time I go to the dentist and the orthodontist, I think I'm bleaching my teeth, which I'm not doing. I'm just getting a really good, even brushing of my teeth with my Quip Your toothbrush you can too and every three months you can get a new brush head for just five bucks you even get your first one for free if you go to getquip.com slash erickson right now you'll get your first brush head refill pack for free it's a great deal quip is great you can leave it as a stocking stuffer even for someone else and you get your first refill free at getquip.com slash erickson that's g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash erickson quip The Good Habits Company, get into a good habit of brushing your teeth. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Welcome the phone number 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving holiday. My goodness gracious. Uh, We we had some technical difficulties here this morning. We have overcome them. Uh, The show goes on. And I'm going to shake things up from what I intended to talk about. We'll get to the Democrats on the campaign trail, but I, I, I want to, I want to approach this differently. First of all, um, if any local station program directors or owners are listening, uh, I do every year a Christmas program uh, that I do on Christmas Eve and redo on Christmas, and I, I've done that on my Atlanta show for years, and we'll be doing it here as well on uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas. Uh, and, and I like to spend this month in my writings also talking about uh, Advent season, though I'm Presbyterian, I'm, I, I've never really been into Advent wreaths and Advent calendars and whatnot, and a lot of churches are, and I kind of get why. I don't necessarily think it's, it's uh, necessary, but there is an aspect to all of this that I want to spend a few minutes with, and that is depression and the season. If, if we can keep it real here for a little bit, Uh, you may be stressed about the holiday season. Having just come through Thanksgiving, you're now thinking about Christmas. Maybe you like me haven't done your Christmas cards and you're starting to stress. Will you even do them? Gosh, how much will it cost? Who do I need to send them to or shopping? There's a story on it. And I asked Chris Burns to stop by tomorrow from dynamic money to talk to us about the stress of the holiday season and spending. Um, this is this is a difficult time for a lot of people. It is a time when suicide rates go up. It is a time. Hey, listen, I, I said we were going to keep it real right now. Um, let's just have a heart to heart on this. It, it, this is a time where depression spikes. Uh, there are people who are lonely. They do not have family. The media sells them an image of Christmas. The Hallmark Channel sells them an image of Christmas that doesn't pan out for many of them, and they want that. And because they see it in culture, they see it on TV, they think that there must be something wrong, and they go in in search of it. It, it. I understand why people get overwhelmed at this time of year. We live in a society right now where the numbers show that there is full employment. Everybody's got a job who wants a job. Everybody's got a job who can get a job. Some people are working two jobs, and those jobs are being counted as one job because they're making eight hours a day, even though they're barely making money. You got people who are struggling. And I realized that when Democrats are in power, uh, progressives are not supposed to talk about uh, how bad some people have it. And when Republicans are in power, conservatives are not supposed to talk about how bad it is out there for some people. But let's just admit there are people out there who, through no fault of their own, are not gainfully employed right now. They're struggling to make ends meet. They're hearing the headlines that everybody's got a job. They don't have a job, but everybody's got a job. They're in that 3.4 percent here in Georgia who don't have a job, Uh, many of them through physical or mental defect, no fault of their own, but some because they've got skill sets that don't line up with what people need these days. There are farmers who are out of work right now. There are farmers filing for bankruptcy. There are farmers who can't even file for bankruptcy because they know that there's just no point. They're going to lose everything. And so I would encourage everyone here to be mindful of that. I would encourage you to be mindful of your neighbor, your friend, who everything looks great on the outside, but on the inside, there's something amiss. There, there's a level of stress there. Uh, you know, my church that I go to, I go to First Presbyterian in Macon, PCA, and we collect a lot of money every year for a lot of causes. And on Sundays, when we we only do communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, once a month. Uh, There are theological reasons we only do it once a month. I realize there are a lot of churches that I've gone to every week because that's what the early church did. Uh, But uh, just as a random tangent, Scripture says that if you take it improperly with an impure heart you haven't repented uh bad things can happen and and with our church they want to give everyone notice and time and and be aware and prepare yourself and they don't want everybody to take it for granted uh, and and they also think that if we did it every week it would just become kind of a rote routine people would stop people would start taking it for granted and people would stop preparing themselves for it and and given given prescriptions in scripture we just we do it once a month when we do it once a month, we also take an offering at the door when people are leaving church, and all the money that's put into the offering place goes to our church. And that money is go- goes to take care of people in our church, and our church is quite generous with people within our church. But I know people in our church who have fallen on hard times, who, because of pride or, or other reasons, refuses to acknowledge that they need help. And it is harder and harder, particularly we, we, we've been terrible about going to church this year. We, we really have. Um, confess my sins. I have been bad about going to church. Uh, my whole family's been bad. We have been sick one after the other. We've been traveling. Um, it, we, we've come up with all sorts of excuses to not go to church. Uh, and, and there are some issues there. But there are a lot of people who go to church regularly who are on hard times and they don't want Anyone in the church to know about it. They don't want to ask for help. It is mostly a matter of pride, and it is something that I think churches that succeed and thrive do good at is having a membership and a congregation, a, a a leadership that is in tune enough with the sensibilities of its members to know when something is wrong and go find them. But there are many, many more people out there who don't go to church regularly who they don't feel that love or they do go to church and they show up at 11 on a Sunday and they're there for the hour and they leave and they're not otherwise part of the church community. There are those without the community. There are those without any faith community. There are those without any family around. There are those who they don't know where to go. And those are the people who fall under the radar and i don't know that i have the solution to find those people the ones who who don't want community who don't seek out community you know the saying is trite that no man is an island uh, but the reality is we are communal creatures i do the i i've i've preached on genesis 1 before and it was actually very funny. The very first time I ever preached, uh, I preached in Colorado at an event, and it was a it was kind of funny. It was a political religious event, and the people who were in politics were asked to talk about religion. The people who were in religion were asked to talk about politics, and I was asked to give the Sunday sermon because I had been in seminary, and uh, they wanted something out of the box. And so I preached on I preached on Genesis one specifically. I preached on Genesis one one. Uh, And one of the things I said you can derive from Genesis 1-1 is that God wants a relationship with us. And because we are created in God's image, we want relationships with each other. Uh, God says uh, that he needed to create Eve for Adam because man should not be alone. And there are a lot of people who are increasingly alone. There are a lot of people who increasingly turn online one of the common traits of a lot of the radicalism we found in this country over the last several years as mass shootings have gone up and, and more and more young, mostly white men uh, have been involved in shootings, is that they have traded their offline physical interactions with people for an online community that looks just like them. And... They seem very much engaged and plugged in, but the reality is it's it's a false engagement. Uh, it, it is a false community, and the reality is they're actually isolated. And more and more we find people who are isolated in that way. Uh, I was talking to Dr. Laura last week about... Um, We go online and we find our, we build our communities and our communities look just like us, think just like us, sound just like us, believe just like us, behave just like us, act just like us, function just like us. Uh, are charitable just like us, and, and in our isolation we are uh, less able to get along, less charitable, less less willing to show empathy or sympathy for people who disagree with us because we encounter those people less and less. They're not in our community that we've made online, and it becomes very easy over time to decide that these people are bad. And once those people are bad, they become our enemy. We see this on the left and right in politics these days. Uh, we all go – we engage in politics with people who think and look just like us, And it becomes easy to otherize the people on the other side. They're no longer our opponents. They're our enemies. They no longer have different ideas of what might work best for this country. They have ideas that we think will destroy the country. And in some cases that's true, but in most cases it's not. They just have a different way of looking at the world based on their own life experiences. And we presume that based on their own life experiences that they're wrong, they're bad, and now they're evil. We isolate ourselves, and that is part of the problem in politics right now, and is part of the problem in society as a whole, is is we live isolated existences. And here we are in the holiday season, and there are people in isolation. They don't even realize in some cases they're isolated because they're constantly plugged in. They're getting messages from people on Facebook. They're on social media. They're on Instagram seeing pictures of other people. They're posting memes. But they never leave the house the only physical people they encounter when they go to a restaurant or a grocery store. And uh, it, it fuels a depressive state at this time of year. You may encounter your family at Thanksgiving. You sit around the table and you realize because you've isolated yourself that you really don't have anything in common with your family anymore. You don't. You can't talk about things outside of the stuff you interact with people online. You, yeah, I, I I know people. I I know very well a few friends of mine who can't talk about anything other than politics these days. It is so consuming to them. It is all they do. Twenty four seven politics. It's one reason I like to cook so much. It's one reason I, I send out recipes. On here. It's one reason. And by the way, I'm going to send out my uh, ginger molasses cookie recipe uh, in a couple days. If you want it, text recipe to three, three, seven, seven, seven. If you're already on the list, don't worry. You don't have to do it. But if you're not on the recipe list, text recipe to three, three, seven, seven, seven. I got a great ginger snap, ginger molasses cookie recipe. Great for this holiday season. It's one reason I do that, though is to have something to talk about, something to engage with other than politics. These days, politics has become so all-consuming for people, it has taken the place of religion. Uh, people have, have they, they've got sacraments, they've they've got dogma, they've got orthodoxy, all in politics. And, and everyone who disagrees is a heretic, in need a burning. And that all becomes real during the holiday season when you have people who, they've isolated themselves Politically, they've isolated themselves physically. They've isolated themselves online. And they no longer relate to people in the outside world. And they need to be dragged back into the outside world. They need to be dragged back into a relational existence with other people. And sometimes the people don't want it because pridefully they've gotten themselves in a bind. They don't want to admit that they've messed up. And it all becomes very, very difficult during the Christmas period in particular. Because during the Christmas period we see the Hallmark Channel shows and we see the commercials on TV and we see the ads and everyone's happy and everyone's smiling and everyone's around plenty and a bountiful presence and a tree with lots of beautifully wrapped things underneath it and it stresses people out and we don't have that and that's not our real world. The real world is messy. The real world is broken. The real world is sinful. The real world is dirty. In the real world people don't have piles and piles of presents under the tree. In the real world we don't have massive amounts of people with the perfectly brown turkey sitting in the middle of the table while we're all holding hands and smiling and talking and in the interracial mixed diversity family of of everyone sitting around and, and smiles and singing. We don't have any of that. It it, it may be the ideal, but it's not the real world. The real world is messy. The real world is five of us sitting around the table and we've cut up the turkey and we've got it on everybody's plate or we've got it piled on the kitchen counter and go go feed yourself and come sit at the table together, but we're not going to display it like that. In the real world, people's presents are wrapped terribly. The bows aren't just so. The real world and the ideal are different. And at this time of year, Consumerism, commercialism, culture, the media, pushes hard the ideal, the pretend. And we could all remember, we could use it for ourselves mentally, that we're not perfect, and life's not perfect, and life's not fair, and what matters is not the perfectly wrapped pile of presents under the tree, but the people in your life. And there are those of us, who have isolated ourselves so much from real people in the real world, and it's not good for us to be alone. And if you are alone, I hope you'll find someone or somewhere with a physical reality where you can actually go be and exist with other people and not just online because it's not healthy for you. And if you know people who have withdrawn from society, withdrawn from friendships, withdrawn from reality, that you may commit to yourself that this holiday season, you may go try to pull that person back into a relational experience with other human beings offline. Because it'll do you good to do that, and it will do them a great deal. We have become a people, creatures of habit, who have disengaged from each other. And we need to re-engage with each other in the real world. And now is a great time to do it as we head into the Christmas season. I mentioned the recipes uh, that I send out. I can't tell you the number of people who have reached out to me by email or Twitter or Instagram... Who actually made that gravy recipe? I made the gravy recipe myself, and I learned something about the gravy recipe. I doubled it in every way, and turns out you don't actually have to add a half cup of flour if you double the liquid. You can keep it with a where I've never actually doubled it before, but I did, and and I mean it turned out fine. Everybody liked it, but I thought it got, it got a little bit too thick with with that. Just keep it a quarter cup of flour for four cups of of liquid, and, and the recipe calls for a quarter cup of flour with a two cups of liquid, but uh, it would have worked fine uh, with four, but it was still good. It was still good. Uh, the flour just didn't brown as much as I, I needed it to. Uh, but a lot of you sent me, uh, thanks for that recipe. And I'm happy to keep doing that just so you can break bread around the table with your friends and family and, and have good stuff. And I'll send out this cookie recipe later this week. You can text recipe to three, three, seven, seven, seven. Um, well, we still got other stuff we need to talk about, including I, I, I put off this audio from the beginning of Doug Collins. He was on with, uh, Chris Wallace. Over the weekend, talking about impeachment and suggested he may still run for the Senate, Uh, Loeffler has her work cut out for her, ensuring that conservatives actually uh, stand down and, and support her and rally around her. But this is... Uh, Doug Collins talking to Chris Wallace over the weekend.
6: First and foremost, the first person who needs to testify is Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff is the author of this report. Adam Schiff has been the author of many things. A lot of them found to be false over the past couple of years, but he's going to be the author of this report. He's compared himself in the past to a special counsel. This is what he said he was doing. Well, if we go back to Clinton and and even back to Nixon, but in Clinton, Ken Starr was a special counsel. He presented a report that we're going to get his uh, judiciary. He actually came and sat and testified under oath and took questions from all sides including the White House. My first and Adam Schiff. So you want to bring him in before the committee, not
7: just to present a report, but to take questions from Democrats and to be cross-examined, if you will,
6: by the Republicans. He needs to be. He's put himself into that position. If he chooses not to, then I really question his veracity and what he's putting in his report. I question his, you know, the motives of why he's doing it. It's easy to hide behind a report. It's easy to hide behind a gavel in intelligence committees behind closed-door hearings. But it's going to be one another thing to actually get up and have to answer questions about what his staff knew, how he knew, what he did about the whistleblower report, his interactions that he's had with Ukraine, the other things that he's had over time in this process, and also why he has still not released documents to our committee and reports to our committee that, that we need to actually po- uh, proceed in our committee of Judiciary Committee, which is the Committee of Impeachment. I have a question. Why are they hiding this stuff from us? If they think they have such a case, give us all the materials and don't let Jerry Nadler write a crazy letter that says on the 6th, let us know your uh, who your witnesses are. We don't even have the information from, Ju- from the Intel Committee yet. This is why this is a problematic exercise and simply a made-for-TV event coming on Wednesday.
0: Yep. It is a made for TV event that they're going to have. I, you know, I, I think Doug Collins is honestly, the, the governor may be doing Collins. A favor. He is right where he needs to be. He really is. Uh, and it, it is, it's telling to me that Nancy Pelosi moved impeachment as much as she could into the intelligence committee in large part to take Doug Collins off the stage. Uh, And now there's no way to avoid it going back to the Judiciary Committee and and Collins is going to be on the stage and he runs circles around the Democrats on this stuff. He's just that good. And he's a nice guy and the Democrats like him too. And that makes it more difficult for the Democrats because Doug Collins is someone it's not easy to hate Doug Collins. He's a nice guy. And even the Democrats know it and they recognize it. And and behind the scenes, they all very much like the guy and they know he puts points on the board, not just for the president, but undermining their case. And if he's going to make a big deal about Adam Schiff and what Adam Schiff and the whistleblower did, that's not good news for the Democrats, which is another reason a lot of reporters are starting to think they're not actually going to push impeachment into the Senate. We'll discuss when we come back. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I mentioned earlier the Democrats still having trouble getting traction over uh, how to handle impeachment and getting support from voters. I I played this in the first hour, but it's worth going back to Chris Lizza. Uh, Paragon of conventional wisdom at CNN uh, Talking about why he thinks voters aren't really caring about impeachment right now
1: Yeah, and I'd say, Jim, that Democrats, if you asked them last Friday Did did those hearings go how you wanted them to? They would say, not in our wildest dreams Did we think Gordon Sondland, for example, would say, yes, there was a quid pro quo That those hearings went Mm better than they could have imagined um, so i would say democrats would have been much happier if those numbers had moved up five or ten points but i would also caution that we people like you and i are paid to follow this stuff extremely closely the average person is gearing up for thanksgiving uh... looking ahead to christmas uh... and so i think there's an element to which we have to take a big Cleansing breath and think to yourself, it's possible that this will take a little bit longer to seep into the body politic, the average voter, and then let's give it two, three, four weeks and see where we're at.
0: Uh, listen, I, I'm not a huge fan of the um, crystalliza analysis of anything. I'm sorry. I, I I heard this audio in the first hour, and it, it, it dawned on me part of what he said at the end. Let me let me replay this, and so you can hear why why my brain is frozen on this. Um, I wanna I wanna highlight for you a section. And again, I, I realize I, I played this in the first hour. Uh, but it just it, it suddenly it, it tripped a switch in my brain this time that it didn't the first time. And what's so interesting is that I can see in the audio file in the WAV file. There's a pause before he says this part. And, and I want to get there with you. But let's play this again. And then we need to highlight this. Yeah.
1: And I'd say, Jim, that Democrats, if you asked them last Friday, did did those hearings go how you wanted them to? They would say not in our wildest dreams. Did we think Gordon Sondland, for example, would say, yes, there was a quid pro quo, that those hearings went mm-hmm better than they could have imagined. Um, So I would say Democrats would have been much happier if those numbers had moved up five or ten points. But I would also caution that we, people like you and I, are paid to follow this stuff extremely closely. The average person is gearing up for Thanksgiving, uh, looking ahead to Christmas. uh, And so I think there's an element to which we have to take a big... Listen to the
0: inhale there. Here, Here we go.
1: Listen, now listen to this last part. Cleansing breath and think to yourself, it's possible that this will take a little bit longer to seep into the body politic, the average voter, and then let's give it two, three, four weeks and see where we're at.
0: Let's give it two, three, four weeks and see where it's at. Y'all, this started in September. We began having uh, inquiries in October. We had public testimony over a multi-week period in November. They're going to have more this week, and, you know, impeachment polling shifted between the beginning of the year and the Ukraine matter because of the Ukraine matter, and it hasn't gone any further. It hasn't gone any further, and the reason it hasn't gone any further is because— the Democrats are having a hard time getting any Republicans. Remember, they said it needed to be bipartisan, and thus far it hasn't. And one of the reasons that they're having a hard time getting Republicans, and even independents now, is, well, listen to Robert Johnson. The, the, he's the founder of BET, Black Entertainment Television. When you take a look at what President Trump has done in the last several months, particularly the conversations surrounding the U.S.-China trade spat, um, is this his to lose, do you think?
5: I think it's—I
7: think the president has always been in a position where— it's his to lose, based on he's bringing a sort of a disruptive force into what would be called political norms. I don't care whether it's his his the way he conducts foreign policy, the way he takes on the 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 government agencies and what he deals with immigration. He brings his style. Now, a lot of people, particularly those who voted for him and those who will vote for him again in the next election, like that style. I think what the uh, Democrats have to do is to be careful not to get caught up in stylistic Trump and more in
0: substantive Trump. Stylistic versus substantive Trump. Uh, There are a lot of voters who like the style of the president. And it comes off right now. In fact, Axios has a, a story out today, Trump the marketer in chief when it comes to impeachment. Uh, that he he has his own messaging on impeachment. Well, and this is befuddling Democrats on the campaign trail because Democrats on the campaign trail would actually like to be talking about impeachment because it provides them a great contrast with Donald Trump. It provides them a way to distinguish themselves against the president. Instead, they're having some really embarrassing moments on the campaign trail, including for Mike Bloomberg, who had this appalling interview uh, with Margaret Hoover on PBS, where he denies that the Communist Party regime is a, a dictatorial regime. Listen, this is Margaret Hoover on PBS interviewing Mike Bloomberg about climate change. And she brings up China. You need to listen to how Bloomberg characterizes this. Well, if I, I way to build it up and then mess myself up. Here we go.
8: States currently accounts for about 15 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Yes. China accounts for roughly 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. How do we, even if we get to net zero, how do you get China, India, and the other countries to be good partners? China
7: is doing a lot. Yes, they're still building a bunch of coal-fired power plants. And they're
8: still burning coal.
7: Yes, they are. But they are now moving plants away from the cities. the, the, The Communist Party wants to stay in power in China. And they listen to the public. When the public says, I can't breathe the air, Xi Jinping is not a dictator. He has to satisfy his constituents, or he's not going to survive. He's horror. not a dictator. No, he has to. He has a constituency to uh, to to, to uh, um, uh, answer to. He doesn't
8: uh, have a vote. He doesn't have a democracy. He doesn't. That he's doesn't not mean held he can survive if his tre-
7: if his advisors if, if, gave is, him. they check
8: on him, just a revolution.
7: You're not going to have a revolution. Nobody. Su- well, no don't... government survives without the will of the majority of its people. Okay. It, it's just. He has to deliver services. The Chinese Communist Party looks at Russia, and they look for where the Communist Party is, and they don't find it anymore, and uh-huh. they don't want that to happen.
8: I mean, I, the, the idea that the Chinese government is responsive to sort of a, a democratic expression of fresh oh, come air, on. clean air. Of course air. they are. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at the people in Hong well, Kong go, who are go, protesting and back and, go back and, and wondering read the, whether the Chinese government cares what The days
7: when you have big pollution in in, in Beijing and they're doing something about it. That's, that's yeah. ridiculous. The trouble is you can't overnight move cement plants and power plants just outside the city that are polluting the air, and you have to have their product. So some of it takes time. And there's always, in, in, in government, even governments that aren't what we would call a democracy, there's lots of stakeholders who have vested interests, and they have an impact. And that's why, if you listen to the young millennials, let's go in and solve the problem overnight. Yeah, that would be great if you didn't have to fund it and get it through legal things.
0: So we wouldn't call it a democracy. Bloomberg seems to think that somehow uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, that it's a democracy, even though we wouldn't call it a democracy. By the way, I got to imagine on the national campaign trail that his New York accent isn't going to play well. But... His refusing to be contradicted. This is a man who is assured of his righteousness because none of the sycophants around the billionaire have dared to challenge him. And he certainly did not like Margaret Hoover challenging him on this issue. And notice again, let's play the very beginning of this. The premise being the, um, the, the Chinese communists are still burning coal, but they've moved them out of the cities.
8: So the United States currently accounts for about 15 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. China accounts for roughly 30 percent of greenhouse gas emissions. How do we, even if we get to net zero, how do you get China, India and the other countries to be good partners? China
7: is doing a lot. Yes, they're still building a bunch of coal-fired power plants. Yes, they're
0: still building a bunch of coal-powered plants
8: still burning
0: coal yes they are but they're still burning coal but they are now
7: moving plants away from the cities they the, the the communist
0: plant. oh so they're still building coal powered plants and they're still burning coal but they're moving them away from the cities that's going to get them to net zero emissions which is the goal for for all the, the, the global warming crowd, is everybody's got to get to net zero. So Bloomberg says they're not getting to net zero, that, but they are moving it out of the city because the people complained about the air quality. You know, the, the reality is that the Chinese Communist Party did something about the air quality because the Chinese Communist Party leaders didn't like the air quality. They live in Beijing too. And when it became a problem for them... In their area of Beijing, that's when they took action. And what did they do? They made the coal powered plant um, eh, operators the bad guys and blamed them and dragged them through the streets and, and ruined them. And then decided they would move all the plants far out of the city to where? to poorer areas that have the exact same problems, but are less prone to to be mobilized. I mean, that's the problem here, and that Bloomberg seems too clueless or or unwilling to acknowledge is that what happened is China moved all the stuff out into smaller cities and villages where the exact same problems are happening with the exact same bad pollution standards, but now there's not a mob of people in the city, and the leaders don't have to deal with it either. But, I mean, Bloomberg's logic, uh, Margaret Hoover's right to call him on this, and he's so dismissive of it that I- in a communist regime, what happens? you got to have some level of revolution. He says they're looking at Russia and the Communist Party there, and it doesn't exist. What happened? In Russia, there was a revolt of the people. The people rebelled, and the military decided, ultimately decided with the people and not the communist leaders. But it took Gorbachev not clamping down on the people. If you will recall from your history, and listen, I was in grade school at the time when this was happening. But even I'm a student of history and know that the big issue here was that Gorbachev did not send the Soviet troops into the streets against the people. He decided to allow the people to protest. And ultimately, in in East Germany and the like, as protesters were, were mobilizing, Gorbachev did not send troops to gun down the protesters as they had in Tiananmen Square with the Chinese. He decided to allow the people to win, and he got out of the way. And the soldiers ultimately decided they would go with the people because it would be the people who would put the next leaders in charge and they aligned with Boris Yeltsin. Bloomberg is completely rewriting history to suggest otherwise. That had Gorbachev gone in in the Soviet Union as the Communist Party head and slaughtered the people and beat them back into submission – there's nothing that people could have done. It's the same thing in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong right now, you've got much of the American establishment refuses to call out the Chinese. The president signed the, the bill supporting Hong Kong freedom in large part because he was scared that Congress would override his veto, which hasn't happened yet uh, with this president. He didn't want a congressional override, even though he's negotiating with the Chinese right now on the trade deal. He suggested that he was with the Chinese people or with the Hong Kong people, but also with President Xi of China. She of China. I'm sorry. It this is it. it it's mind numbing to have Mike Bloomberg defending the Chinese communists. Where are the rest of the Democrats here? Elizabeth Warren should be out tearing him up on this. Elizabeth Warren should be out on the campaign trail, savaging Bloomberg over something like this. Remember, Bloomberg was out there, or Warren was out there beating him up for his money earlier. Here's Warren from last week on the campaign trail. So
5: I am here on day two of Michael Bloomberg's $37 million ad buy. You know, Michael Bloomberg is making a bet about democracy in 2020. He doesn't need people he only needs bags and bags
0: of money. Where is she on the campaign trail attacking him for this? She should be out there attacking him for this. All the Democrats should be out there. They 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 claim the moral high ground. They say that they've got to take on Donald Trump. They they say that they've got to to have moral credibility. They've got to denounce stuff like this. Where are they when it comes to China? are the Democrats unwilling to take on Mike Bloomberg because they're unwilling to hold China to account? Is it really the Republicans who are willing to stand up and hold China to account and the Democrats defending China and Bloomberg? Really? I got to admit, I had completely forgotten that uh, Joe Sestak was running for Congress and Steve Bullock was running for, uh, or president, president. Uh, And Bullock, the governor of Montana, running for president. But not just them. What has happened to Deval Patrick? Deval Patrick is out there, supposedly he was going to be the guy to save the Democrats from themselves. Now, now, here's a thing. Um, Deval Patrick's entrance into the race came after multiple media reports that Democratic voters were actually unhappy. They were unhappy with the lot of Democrats who were running. They were unhappy with the direction the party was going. They were unhappy with their chances of beating President Trump. And suddenly the media starts buzzing about, we we may have a uniter in the race. We may have the next Barack Obama in the race. And who comes into the race? Deval Patrick. Deval Patrick. And the issue here is... Why did he come into the race and did the media coordinate his announcement and his arrival? Did the media have something to do with it? Because it it, it doesn't seem to be a coincidence at this point that there were two or three days of media coverage about the party being deeply unhappy with the people running. Uh, they were deeply unhappy with the field. They were deeply unhappy with the amount of people running. They were deeply unhappy with the quality of the candidates. They were deeply unhappy with, uh, the way forward. They were deeply unhappy with every part of it. And then suddenly Deval Patrick announces, and you've got this whisper. It was on morning Joe. It was on CNN, uh, late night MSNBC there. There's going to be a candidate. There's going to be somebody to come in and unite the party. Someone's going to come in and, and rally the field, rally the crowd. We're going to be able to get a new candidate in the race. We're going to make this happen. Joe Biden's floundering. We've got a new guy coming. No, we're not talking about Bloomberg. It's someone else. We can't tell you who. And then Deval Patrick comes out and people are like, huh? Really? Huh? You? Why? You? Why you? And they got a problem. It's like they got a problem on the impeachment. They got a, a, a problem with the crowd. The The voters actually, I think, have decided that they they like the field. They, they like the number of candidates running. They have someone to choose. But it's the elite in the party who aren't happy. And the elite in the party who worry about beating Donald Trump, much more so than the base. And the elite are also worried about the progressive radicals within the party. Because the elite within the Democratic Party are not as progressive or as committed to progressivism as the rest of them. So you got a problem in that regard as well. But this reminds me very much of the Kamala Kamala Harris story in the New York Times over the weekend. There was a big story in the New York Times about Kamala Harris's campaign imploding. Uh, she's floundering around uh, searching for a reason to be in the race. Her fundraising is heard. And one of the comments in this story is that many within her campaign seem to be more focused on the loud voices on Twitter than they are to the voters. And as a result of being focused on the loud voices on Twitter, their campaign reason is shifting, their message is shifting, and their policies are shifting. And it goes back and forth depending on the loud voices on Twitter. It does make you wonder if this is a problem, an overarching problem for the Democratic Party. Maybe it's a problem for the the Republicans as well, except the president is so dominant on social media, it becomes less of a problem. But with the Democratic Party, they don't have a leader right now. Um, Barack Obama is refusing to intervene other than to say we don't really need a revolution right now. We don't need to be that radical. And so the Democrats are grasping at what to stand for and what positions to take and how best to challenge Donald Trump. And the way they've decided to do it is to go on Twitter in particular and see what are the leading luminaries of the Democratic Party saying. Well, the leading luminaries of the Democratic Party on Twitter, some of whom are anonymous, fling poo at each other all day. And that's essentially what the Democratic Party uh, presidential primary has become. It's just a bunch of poo flinging and nothing sticking. It's it's bizarre that this is where it's come to, and it's it's fascinating to me that you've got people in Kamala Harris's campaign willing to, to speak on the record about this stuff. But what's also so interesting is in their willingness to speak so openly suggests that her campaign is dead – Even if she doesn't realize it's dead yet. And the level of backbiting has already begun. You got to remember Kamala Harris was elected Attorney General in California, ran for the Senate race and won, and kind of exerted her influence on the Senate, uh, strutted her stuff in the Senate. She actually got some bipartisan uh, friendships. In the U.S. Senate privately, there are a number of Republicans in the Senate who really like her. They like working with her. They think she's a straight shooter. She kind of uh, got the PR machine around her to advertise her as the uh, female Barack Obama. She, too, black, and she, too, a messenger of hope. She, too, willing to, to bridge the gap between the progressives and the Democratic Party base and mainstream America that's somewhat skeptical of progressives. She could do it just like Barack Obama. And then she got out on the campaign trail and was in over her head. And now we know part of it was too many people on her campaign listening to Twitter. Friends, you should never listen to Twitter. In fact, I was approached over the weekend in church on Sunday uh, by someone um, in ministry saying that they follow me on Twitter. I said, you should get off Twitter altogether. Twitter is bad for your soul. It will consume you. Uh, I, I feel compelled myself to be on Twitter at this point, largely uh, as, as a job requirement. Uh, To interact with listeners and stuff, but I think if you're in clergy or you're a politician, you should stay off Twitter or at least have it be very one sided, so that you're talking, but you're not responding, you're not paying attention to the conversation, you're telling people what you think. Because oftentimes the loudest voices on Twitter who push back on you are the fringe voices, so you get all this pushback on Twitter telling you you're wrong on something. You start second guess yourself. You don't want to second guess yourself. You want to double down because people on Twitter, you just you don't want to pay attention to them. No offense to those of you I pay attention to on Twitter. I do pay attention to you, but man, if you're a politician or preacher, stay away from social media. It consumes you.